When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Adulting Well listeners. This is Pepper, a.k.a. Joshua, a.k.a. Pepper, here to tell you about Anchor. So we used to host our podcast on another service, and we had this show for maybe three or four years at this point. And we got some metrics and things, but we didn't have a lot to do with them. And we recently switched over to Anchor, and what's amazing about it is it has all the metrics for the show, so you can see you know, how many downloads you get and things like that. But it it also lets you engage with the audience uh, in ways that our old service couldn't. So for instance, we can have polls, we can ask listeners to uh, leave us messages and questions and things like that. And we can uh, put them on the air super easily and answer those questions. Just, uh, that's just one example, but there are just a lot of different ways that we can um, engage with you now that we're using Anchor. So uh this is our first ad, and it's for this service that we're using to provide this podcast to you. And I think it's uh, actually a really, really good service. Um, and if you have a podcast, I recommend it. You can download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Uh, thanks for uh, pausing with me for a second. Now back to the episode. Rudiment. Hello, and welcome to the Adulting Well podcast. And we're going to find out if Kevin's right in just a minute. I am your host, Joshua. I am joined as always by Kevin. Kevin, how are you? Thank you very much. I am doing well, and I'm really happy to be here tonight. We have a special guest tonight, Lori Rudiman. Um, she is According to her website, speaker, author, podcaster, badass, most important to me, as I mentioned in our pre-talk, uh, grown-up punk kid. So her goal is to help companies, leaders, and HR departments fix work by creating policies, processes, and programs that value the inherent worth of people. And I had a chance to read through some of your stuff on your website as well as take a peek at the book. Um, and I got to say, you know, as a grown-up punk kid who's a business owner now, I'm super excited to have you on. So Thank welcome. you both very much. That's a really great introduction. And boy, you know, I don't know if I'm happy to be here or a little ashamed of my career. I don't know where this is going to go. So we'll see. It feels like therapy tonight. Why would you be ashamed? Well, you know, there's part of me that's fundamentally disappointed that I'm playing this game. You know, I remember being young and growing up. I grew up in the city of Chicago and my parents were reformed hippies who had no money and had to get corporate jobs for my dad. And my mom became a Chicago police officer, randomly enough. Yeah, yeah. And I remember my dad saying to me, you know, a man who raised me on Led Zeppelin, Jethro Tull, King Crimson, right? Like all the 70s yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> King Crimson. Uh, I remember him saying to me one day, Lori, someone's going to make you watch a Tony Robbins video and you're going to have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, he was right. He was absolutely right. I had student loans to pay off. So 
I don't know. I hate it when my parents are right. There's something terrible about We talked a little bit about that before we started recording and that I I also have this kind of guilt that I carry around that I feel like I'm part of part of something that I kind of really against, which is like I'm in this dot com culture, which I don't think is a very healthy culture, though it's trying to be. I am I'm a gentrifier because I bought this house in Oakland. Right. So I'm part of that. So for me. Like, I think it's, I think I can totally relate to that feeling of, of I'm, I'm kind of part of, I'm kind of part of the system that I, that I, yeah. that I rail against. Yeah. Um, I think there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I, um, I have this philosophy about the work that I do. I'm primarily in the world of human resources and I believe in defunding HR because there's nothing good about the world of HR. Like it's built on a broken system and you can't fix it. You have to knock it down. But I'm not confident that I'm the person who could rebuild it in its glory state. And I really don't know anybody else who can. And so I'm stuck trying to fix it. And that keeps me up at night because I'm part of a system that oppresses men, oppresses women, oppresses people Mm -hmm. of color really sends the wrong message to workers. You know, when you enter into corporate America, as you may know, you're told that HR is there to be of service to you. And that's a big fucking lie. Mm -hmm. And so I did this work for many, many years, really torn between being honest to myself and what I believed in and paying back Sally Mae and making a payment to my mortgage company. And I thought for a long time, if not me, nobody else. Like, I have to be here. I have to keep it real. And the system just wore right. me down as well. It really made me exhausted, yeah. made me tired, made me forget about my own individual well-being. I stopped learning. I stopped growing and became just kind of this depressed pl- blob and part of the problem. So, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's kind of a messed up situation. So, now, the past decade, I'm trying to attack it from the outside Mm-hmm. I might be making headway. I don't, I don't know. We'll see. I wrote a book about my experiences and about my life and about what I've seen in the world of work. And I tried to write an anti-self-help, anti-motivation, anti-career book and speak honestly about what's happening in the world of work. And hopefully people find that helpful. I'm trying to be of service. I mean, any new ideas are welcome at this point, I would say. Yeah, for yeah. real, man. Well, so you mentioned you grew up in Chicago, and I know from both um, kind of the pre-research and the first chapter of your book, you were also a punk kid. So one of the things we love to talk about is- Kevin, what, Kevin we want to talk about HR. We do not want to talk about <laughs> punk rock. <laughs> well, she does. to she, talk about so, being a punk kid on. in Chicago. Hold on a second. She's she punk rock HR- that's like her thing. So let's, let's, uh, let's be clear. Right. She, I'll yeah. allow it. She, in, she invited this by the name of her podcast and, and some of the stuff she does. So, <laughs> so talk a little bit about how you were drawn to that. I mean, I'm, I'm curious about, I always, I love origin stories and you know, punk rock origin stories are my favorite. So have at it. Yeah. Thanks. Well, I was born in 1975, so I'm a little late for some of the first and second wave of punk rock music, although I told you my parents love music, so I wasn't raised on Baby Einstein and Barney and all that shit. I was raised on really great 70s and 80s music. Uh, There was a radio station in Chicago, WXRT, that is still phenomenal, and I grew up listening to that and really just always had music playing in my life. And then 
kind of became a teenager in the late 80s and early 90s. And that was really the time of the rise of Wax Tracks Records. And in Chicago, that was a really big label. So there were bands like KMFDM and Ministry that were really prevalent and Front 242 and this industrial sound that really drew me in. And of course, there was Nine Inch Nails and Nitzarab and all of that. And like did you hang out with people that like listen to that music? Like, How did you even find out about that stuff? Yeah, yeah. Well, I told you my mom was a Chicago Chicago cop and she had one rule, don't get arrested. So I thought, well, fuck it. As long as I don't get arrested, I'm going to be fine. You know, and even if I do get arrested, it's going to be fine. You know? So I would hang out with my friends at places like um, the Riviera, the Aragon Ballroom. We would go and see concerts. And back then you learned about music from your friends. There was no Spotify. Mm -hmm. There was no nothing. Right. You know, it was just what the older cool kids were listening to. And since I already knew, like, you know, Elvis Costello and The Cure and all of that and R.E.M. from my parents, it just kind of naturally was part of this. And I don't know. I had a boyfriend who liked Fishbone and uh-huh. Sisters mm-hmm. of Mercy. And he said, do you want to go to a Sisters of Mercy concert with me? And I went, I don't know who that is, but yes. And that was one of the moments that changed my life. Because that concert, I walked in and Andrew Eldritch is up on stage and he's crazy on heroin at that point, you know, and disappears for like 20 minutes. And there's just (laughs) sweat and confusion and a mosh pit. And I'm five feet tall. And I thought, this is it, man. This is my life. You know, I just loved it. And I think there's something about growing up like working class that almost pulls you into this punk scene. And I don't know. I loved it. I love my little boyfriend and I love the little life we were building. You know, it was super fun. And from there, my musical taste just kind of opened. But yeah, I think uh, I think it's always the friends who draw you in, right? So that was certainly my mm-hmm. story. That's yeah, and that's that's kind of the deal. So um, I think that it was mentioned that you were involved in Riot Girl in some way too. Is that true? I mean, it's not like I was involved. I mean, I'm just a working class kid from the Northwest side of Chicago, right? But I love the Riot girl aesthetic. And when mm-hmm. I was younger, like zines were really big. And so before I ever dreamed of becoming America's HR lady, right? You know, <laughs> I thought I was going to be a writer and I'm going to produce all these zines and oh, look, I'm going to change the world. And of course, that goes nowhere. And you're left with, what am I going to do? Well, I guess I'm going to try to go to college, right? And try to figure this out. So um, I went to school. And throughout school, I still hung out with these punk rock kids and, you know, loved bands like My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult and Front Was that in Chicago also? Pardon me? Did you go to school in Chicago? I um, am a typical punk rock kid, so I bounced around from college to college, right? And at one point, I'm like, oh, I'll go do a a semester in London. You know, that might work out. And then I had no money. So that five-year plan finally wrapped itself up. And I was a kid with piercings and tats and really a degree in English and no real career prospects. I thought maybe I would go to graduate school, but then I realized the cost of graduate school and I went, there's no way. Mm -hmm. So I went to my university and asked them, what can you do for me? Like, I hear you place kids in jobs. Like, let's talk about this. They said, well, there's an unfilled internship in a candy factory in the HR department. (laughs) And that just Uh... sounds fantastic, doesn't it? I'm like, yes, sounds great. (laughs) How much does it pay? It paid like $8.75 an hour. And I'm like, all right. Nice. They told me I would see the entire organization and maybe I would find a job that I loved. And it turns out I like hanging out with the workers. I walked into this candy factory and met Bosnian immigrants 
who were fresh from the war in the 90s, who immigrated to America. Oh, wow. And they were doctors and lawyers in Bosnia. And now they were on the line making candy. And I wanted to know what happened. And I think mm-hmm. that really cemented my love of workforce stories. Hmm. When did you... I think we're going to jump around a little bit. When did you start to notice there were things in HR that needed to change? It sounded like you were maybe conflicted about having the duality of the company's interests versus the employee's interests. My wife's in HR, so I'm very close to this, and I get a lot of the, the inside stories. But it sounds like a very hard position to be in to me. Yeah. You know, I walked into that job at the candy factory and I was, you know, in what I thought were professional clothes, which was black pants and my nice flannel shirt and my nice combat boots, right? (laughs) And they said, and my head was shaved and I had piercings that were visible. And they said, you can't come in the factory like this. This is a health violation. So take those piercings out. And by the way, get yourself over to JCPenney and clean up a little bit. And I remember the HR director said to me, who do you think you are? Punk rock HR? (laughs) (laughs) Let me file that away for future pissed off moments, you know, but right away I knew that I didn't belong, but it seemed unfair because I was good at the work I was doing, but inherently within HR, there's an automatic conflict. We say we're there in the interest of the workforce, or at least we pretend that we care about things like employee experience and culture. And it turns out we're very good at lying to ourselves in human resources, Mm -hmm. as well as to the workforce. So almost immediately, I knew something was wrong when they told me, you know, this is 1996, your job is to watch the fax machine because we don't trust that the workers aren't going to abuse the fax machine. And I'm like, who the fuck is going to fax things? It's Even in 1996, it was a candy factory. But right off the bat, Nobody trusted the workforce with technology, and it's still true today. I mean, up until a couple of years ago, workers couldn't get on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at work. It wasn't until we started bringing in our own mobile devices that we were allowed to do that. So, I mean, we've got a long series of mistrust, and technology is just the tip of the iceberg that way. So, yeah, there was conflict from the start. Hmm. It's interesting. Well, yeah, I was thinking, so when you were talking about that, I am, um, I own a company now and we've had a ton of HR issues over the years. You know, I'm not going to disclose specifics because that's inappropriate, (laughs) but, um, I mean, you know, I come from a working class background. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. Here's the rub for us is we hire primarily people that have are marginalized. So individuals with substance abuse yeah. recovery issues and formerly incarcerated people and individuals that have less than a high school diploma. So that comes with a whole nother set of, you know, sort of support problems. Um, and yeah, you know, if, I, if anything, a, your, your business. Um, no, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. We're, you know, it's the internet, right? So we're going to have these moments where we step over one another and break apart. You know, if anything, your business would benefit from some really good HR consulting and also, you know, community funds available for training, but we don't do that. We take people who are actually passionate about individuals, maybe, maybe like your wife, who really do believe in the power of the human being to do things beyond what they even realize, right? To overachieve beyond their skill sets. And we shove them into big corporations instead of 
the mom and pop and, you know, the small businesses that really need that expertise. So, you know, we've deployed HR in the wrong ways to begin with. But, you know, people are complicated and they bring their underdeveloped, totally messed up personal lives to work. And then we've got a system of work that doesn't necessarily have any resources to address that. So right off the bat, we've just got a broken system that nobody's speaking honestly about. (sighs) Yeah, Yeah, this is a bummer. I'm sorry, man. Well, yeah. No, no, it's real. This is totally real. But but I I will say, I will say, you know, I tried to write a book where I offer a group of solutions for both business owners and workers. And that's really what I'm kind of excited to talk about in this world now because work is fundamentally broken, right? But I think as employees, one of the things we need to start doing is taking a lesson from these big employers. You know, I used to work for a company called Pfizer and it's just like a small global pharmaceutical company, right? And (laughs) Pfizer always had money for Pfizer. Pfizer's number one job was to exist at the end of the day. And had I just run my life like a CEO, like a business, and not had been, I was stuck in learned helplessness. I was stuck in a lot of blaming. I was stuck in a lot of anger. Instead of really taking that time and attention and not worrying about the company, but worrying about me, I would have been a better human being and I would have been a better worker. And so I think that's where I think there's opportunity in 2021. We know these systems have failed us or we know that we're coming to work without skill sets that we really need. So it's time to really lean into, I believe, self-leadership, which is just individual accountability, ownership of our well-being, emotional, physical, financial. I think we need to really embrace this idea of continuous learning because if you're not learning, you're not growing. I mean, William Burroughs said that. And if you're not growing, what, what's the point of life? And then finally, risk-taking. I don't know when we all became so fucking afraid, but the things we're afraid of at work are often just in our head. These are stories we're telling ourselves. As you know, it's so hard to fire people in this country. And if we just took smarter risks about our jobs, man, our employers would love us to run our lives like businesses, like professional workers. So those are the four things that I talk about in my book. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and I I think so. One of the things that we often hear from people that grew up in the punk scene too, is that they, most of what they learned about what they're doing now, they learned through, you know, going to being a part of, you know, shows in a community that was independent and kind of had its own sort of like moral code. And, you know, each city was slightly different. Like there was, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on. And, and it sounds to me when I hear you talk about this, like, kind of going in and just like kind of turning this HR belief on its, you know, on its side and saying, no, there's a better way to do this where we connect with each other. We find out what's best for everybody involved. Um, and we communally come up with solutions. I mean, that to me is like, that's, that's punk. Like that's, that's like a tackling a problem in a way that's completely outside of the box. And, you know, and I grew up in a household as well. I mean, my mom was in HR my whole life. In fact, we lived in right outside of Detroit for a brief period. And I made that trek to wax tracks at 15 years old from Detroit to Chicago to check out the amazing record store. And I was a huge ministry fan and, 
So all those bands you mentioned, I was like, oh man. And, um, but she did the, she set up the entire plant for Saturn in Tennessee. That was like one of her big jobs. So she hired everybody. She did all the recruiting because then everybody was sort of a generalist. You know, there wasn't like this, you're a recruiter and you're a, you know, there was a lot less of that in the, in the eighties. Um, but it's really interesting to me because running a business that is different than most where our idea is essentially that a bunch of ex junkies and, um, you know, formerly incarcerated people are going to, you know, take this to the top. We've done that, but we still come up against the same issues that every other company does with HR. And so, you know, obviously we'll have a side conversation about what's that. an example of something. Well, what's an example of something like that's more tangible that I could understand. Like what would be an example of a problem you had that HR, the current HR is bad at handling, but new punk rock HR would be good at handling. Yeah. Well, you know, you just talked about um, community and you talked about formerly incarcerated individuals who come with a whole host of societal issues that really don't have anything to do with the job. You know, the old way of doing HR would give those people three strikes and they're out. They would be compliance focused. They would put them on a PIP maybe, or they would recommend the EAP if they were progressive. And I'm using air quotes here. If you had access to an employee assistance program, I think there's a new way of doing this, which is to really understand the root cause of what's going on in that individual's life. And maybe you can fix the problem or you can't, but not to deny what's happening to them on a human level. You know, I worked with an HR department that shall remain nameless, and they were having attendance issues. And it turns out that some of the people who were guilty of repeated attendance issues were their African-American employees who were constantly being pulled over on the way to work. Now, there's a conversation to be had. If you're a major employer in a town and the cops are pulling over your workforce on the way to work, there's no HR policy or procedure that's going to fix that. you got to go have a conversation with the sheriff, right? So these are the kinds of things that punk rock HR wants to get to the core of. What's really going on in someone's life? People are not late because by and large, they're assholes. You know, there are things that are going on. There are things that are getting in the way of them being optimal employees. Let's talk about that. Let's figure this out what's amazing, going on. Uh, when I lived in Portland, I had an hour and a half commute each way on the train. And the, it was my first tech support job. So it was my first non-service job, really. And I was so excited. But they had a point system for when you were late. And if my train was late, they could automate the computer docked <laughs> points for me. And once you reach a certain amount of points, you were just fired. So that was my whole arc there. And uh, I think that's an example. Yeah. And you know, the old HR way of doing that would be to say, Oh, well, you know, you snooze, you lose, you're late. And that's fair. But is it really fair? And is it really right? And is it really human? And I think there's something really important to ask. Are we working in a way that's intrinsically human? Or are we trying to act like police officers and robots? And, you know, having seen the inside of a police system from the eyes of my mother, which is really interesting in the 80s and 90s, I can say that you know, a lot of the fears that people have about the police department are absolutely fucking true. And there are a lot of corollaries to the world of HR. You know, we are compliance driven. We're not necessarily in power, but yet we're there to, you know, be the bullshit de facto police in certain moments. So 
when people say defund a defund the police, I'm like, hell yeah. And when I say defund HR, I'm not talking about like reallocate funds and fix it. I mean, wipe it down and teach people how to police themselves, how to do great work, bring in experts, reallocate money in your budget, invest in training, learning and development. But um, you don't need somebody to make sure someone else is behaving. Those days are over. That, that is what about over- the reverse when you have uh, someone in power abusing that power? It's a really good question. You know, this is so common, right? We saw this with Me Too and Black Lives Matter really exposing a lot of executives who are absolutely terrible human beings. And I just have this fundamental belief that not everybody can quit, not today. But if you're working in a toxic environment, it's never going to get any better. Look around you. I have a mentor by the name of Bob Sutton who wrote this book called The No Asshole Rule. And he believes that if you're in a toxic work environment, you can't fix it. The only thing you can do is vote with your feet. Because everybody who's working there was once like you. They once walked in on day one and went, what the heck is going on here? And yet they stayed and became complicit. So if there's an executive, a CEO who's absolutely abusive or terrible, sure, you can report him. Sure, you can try to fight truth with power. But the best thing you can do is make a plan and get the hell out of there. Like you've got to protect your own well-being. And I think that's part of what being in the punk scene really, really taught me, right? That nobody is coming to save you. You've got to save yourself. And those lessons from an early day really stood with me. There is no cavalry coming. It's on you. Yeah. My sorry, my three year old just busted in here, so <laughs> I had to jump and close the door really quick. Bring that three year old in. This now. is like a new way of work. Yeah, he's he's run. I think he's run through the back of our show naked once, but <laughs> he's either in a costume or he's naked most of the time. That's the only way three year olds should be. That's what I think. <laughs> isn't that kind of kind of great thing about uh, if there's anything good about COVID, like we're all seeing the real side of one another. We're all getting to know one another at a very intimate level. And it makes hating someone at work a little harder when you see their three-year-old run naked in the background. You know, you've got to yes. love a person like that. So yeah. That's fascinating. You mentioned that because I was at a place once where um, the boss was really prickly and he didn't talk well to, to employees, but I knew him cause I had been to events with him. I had been to bars with him. I know that he's as serious about every, everything he talks about the same way. Right. So when he's talking to me, I can, I know him and I, but when you had new people come in, it was hard because they didn't have that familiarity with him, yeah. you know, and I yeah. think that's interesting. interesting. I in re- COVID, it makes it really hard. I write about that a lot because a lot of people say, oh, my boss is a jerk and I hate my boss or my boss hates <laughs> me. And I try to humanize the boss. And it may be true. They may be terrible individuals, but your boss has a boss and your boss has a spouse maybe or a partner or an ill family member. And there are things going on in your boss's life that you have no idea about. 
So you can be mad and you can be angry and you can think this person is a jerk, but you can still treat that boss with respect and with dignity and kindness as a human being, not because you may get it back in return, but that's because that's the way we ought to be living in this world. There are truly evil people out there, but we should reserve those titles for Donald Trump and Mike Pence and Bill Barr, right? right? And not conflate that kind of evil with some dude who's just prickly at work. So I love that you knew your boss on a human level. Yeah, yeah, it helps. <laughs> but with COVID, you don't have those 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 outings anymore. You don't get to see people as vulnerable. But maybe it's to your point, you do get to see the naked kid run by and that helps kind of. You know, but those outings used to be all kinds of terrible as well. Like they were, yeah. <laughs> that too. Yeah, I would, yeah, yeah. I would hold the two drink tickets that people were going to get, right? And they would bribe me. They would say, "How do I get another drink ticket from you?" And I'm like, "You don't, you know." Like that was my job tonight. I'm only giving you two drink tickets. It was a terrible job. But then oh, you stand yeah. around and drink your warm Chardonnay or whatever crappy drink you're drinking, and make chit chat and eat the soggy risotto balls. It was terrible. It was networking was awful. So at least we can be home now with our own drink of choice, whatever that is, and. When it's done, we can shut off the laptop if we're healthy and be done with it. Oh, I don't do that. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> that's called that's so, called boundaries. Um, we can work on that. Yeah. So what I mean, where where are you now? Where do you live? You grew up in Chicago. Yeah. You're I and I'm gonna just actually I'm gonna tell on myself. I went ahead and stalked your Instagram before we got on because this is this is my role. I like yep. to research people, um, and I know I know about the amazing dog that you found. That oh my god, that I'm in love yeah, with. Yeah, she's beautiful. She's that beautiful. I might Her name that is I might Maggie. fly to wherever you are and pick up. <laughs> if, she's, <laughs> if she's still up for adoption, but um, we so, we found her a home. We found her. Okay. So, so That's I'm amazing. based in Raleigh, North Carolina now. Um, we're down here because my husband works in the pharmaceutical industry. And, you know, Chapel Hill is just such a great, quirky, amazing town with, like, great indie bookstores and Carboros, uh, awesome as well. So we're here. And, I mean, it's kind of corporate because mm-hmm. my husband's kind of corporate. And that's just the choice I've made in this world. But... I do foster cats and dogs to bring a little bit of joy into my life. Yeah, yeah. So this summer we had a couple of, we had this really amazing litter and there were four of them, four kittens and three of them got adopted and one of them just had a cranky face perpetually and nobody wanted her. I love those. Yeah, we named her Spicy. And so Spicy's around here somewhere. And then we were driving to get Chinese food and a dog ran in front of us. So we started fostering a puppy. And, you know, these are the things that I try to do to give back so that I'm not constantly perpetually focused on work. And the more I do stuff outside of work, I think the more it elevates my professional life because I'm more human, I'm more interesting, I've got other dimensions than the crappy things that I'm working on. So when someone comes to me and tells me that they're bored at work or unhappy, like my go-to recommendation is volunteer, go take a class. We're in the golden age of learning. And if you're bored in this world, that's on you. That is absolutely on you. There's no reason to be bored. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm a huge animal lover. And so we have a rescue kitty and a rescue dog. Um, you know, I'm definitely more of the dog person for sure. But, um, 
I just like, I find that I find a kinship with people that have that desire to help these, you know, amazing beings. And I mean, that like that, that they're, you know, that dog was beautiful. I mean, that's oh, insane. She was. And but, someone um, just, you know, for whatever reason, just threw her out into the world at eight months old. I mean, it was just disgusting. And I think it's interesting. We talked a little bit about like the punk community and the punk scene. Mm-hmm. That scene for me really ignited my passion around social activism and politics like so many other people. But I hung out with people who were deeply anti-racist and deeply, you know, pro-animal rights and interested in the environment before it was like a thing these days. And we're warning about climate change in the very late 80s and early 90s. Mm -hmm. So for me, this idea that I would live a life that didn't have animals in it or didn't have an element of activism is crazy. But, you know, to your earlier point about going into work, sometimes work expects you to shut that off and not have like mm-hmm. personal passions or be interested in politics. And I can't live that way. I always have to have animals in my life. And I always have to talk about animal rescue work and politics and all the stuff that's going on. So that's just part of who I am. And I hope that, you know, as the workforce matures and as we get a little bit more thoughtful about the world of work, we can have more of that. People being real, people showing up and being a little bit more authentic. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think it, we'd have less, sorry, I just, I think we'd have way less weird work situations if you were allowed to go, you know what, man, I just had a huge fight with my wife this morning about money, you know, or right, something. You, you, you could do that. Honest. Why don't you do that? Right. Why don't well, we do I, that? I do. <laughs> most people <laughs> don't. But, you know, when you, when you really bet on yourself in that way and you say, okay, I'm just going to be honest and authentic, it has downstream effects for other people. Absolutely. You make it less weird for other people. And I think that's part of what I'm trying to do in this world. You know, it's not like I was one of a kind in corporate America. That are, there are tens of thousands of people just like us who loved great music and have covered up their tats and taken out their piercings, right? Or haven't covered up their tattoos and go to work and really struggle with this. And if we just talk about this and normalize it, I think we would be happier. I don't know. That's my work in theory. Well, I think it's interesting too. My wife works for Salesforce and they've instituted a pretty robust um, volunteer time off uh, program. And so it encouraged her to do other stuff. Like we sponsor a family every year for Christmas and it's all stuff that came in through their, you know, their corporate social responsibility and their, you know, but when it comes to HR stuff, you know, it's like when we're talking about pay increases or, you know, changes to schedules, you know, they've got all these rules and, so it's one of those things that I think when you when you discuss the idea of these these um these rules and workplaces being arcane, it's true. Like it really is like when you come down to it, no matter how progressive a company is, and I consider us to be very progressive, like we let people bring their dogs to work. We have a very aggressive, you know, benefits package. Um there's a lot of cool stuff we do, but when you mention like the like the calling the employee helpline, I, it like hit me right in the chest because that's what we do with people when even in our, you know, world where we're helping individuals out of the community, it's so ingrained in how we operate as owners of companies, you know, and it's how the hell do we shake out of this? But you know what, that's, go ahead. 
Oh, no, I'm sorry. I don't mean to step all over you. I love I love when I do that. It's just the, the times that we're in. Um, you, there's no need to shake out of it. There's just a need to really see the human being in this and to figure out, am I making things better or am I making it worse? And I think right there, those are really great questions to ask. So if someone's clearly in crisis and they're bringing that stuff to work, if the EAP helps, God love you, use the EAP, do whatever you need to do to get that person into the system that can help them. But I think there are, you know, beyond that, there are just other things that we can do from the moment we meet someone in the interview process. We can be relentlessly honest about what work offers and what it doesn't. We can set Mm. expectations a little bit better. We can talk about how we want you to feel a sense of community when you come to work. We want you to have friends, but this is still a professional environment. I think so many companies lie and say, we're family here and we're not family here because we've got lawyers and we've got systems and there are other things that really affect that. We've got municipal laws that say we can say certain things and not. We can't fight City Hall today alone. So I think a more honest conversation at the onset around expectations, relationships, what work is going to be like. The best boss I ever had said, I'm going to give you references on me and I want you to call these individuals. And I didn't have a great experience with all of them. Like, I want you to talk to this person about what we did when we got into a fight. And I want you to talk to this person about what it was like when she was disappointed with her raise. Like, that kind of transparency is groundbreaking and made me say, yeah, I want to work for this person, even though it's in a big system that I don't necessarily appreciate. So I think... Gosh, you're on the right path, though. And how many companies don't even offer an EAP or don't care would say you're having a breakdown, you're out? Yeah, that's interesting because there's that, you know, everybody knows that that saying if it's more expensive to lose someone than to hire something, keep it's better to keep someone. <laughs> what is that saying? <laughs> what is that saying? <laughs> it's, it's far, far more expensive to lose someone and to rehire because they have all this knowledge that comes with the experience of working there. But yeah. you don't often hear, um, like it's going to save you money to fix that person's car. That's yes. been there for two years that's and right. is having car trouble is going to lose their job because their car is breaking. Um, but I think that kind of thinking if thinking in terms of like, hey, this will save you money is probably a good way to help get the message across. <laughs> That's such a, uh, such a good thing. You know, what really drives me crazy, though, is companies are on this generosity and compassion and ethical bandwagon right now. And they're like, here's what we're doing. We're allowing our workforce to bank their PTO and donate it to workers who run out. And I'm like, why don't you just let that person take whatever time off they need? You know, or we're allowing workers to do an emergency fund. So when Susie what you just Carp- said just made me so livid, I can't even like. But for real, they're pa- these are Fortune 100 companies that are patting themselves on the back for PTO banking, emergency funds for workers who are in the middle of a crisis, and it's like. They're sick with resources. Their CEOs are making 300 times the average annual salary of a worker, and they're not going to fix a car. They're not going to be generous to someone whose spouse was diagnosed with cancer. I mean, it drives me up a wall. And then you have HR professionals who are like, I don't know what to do. I tried to stand up, but I can't fix this. It's like, oh my God, you can do what I've done and so many others have done. Quit. Leave this system. Come back in as an esteemed consultant and try to fix it that way. I mean, I, I, that's what I'm trying to do. And 
so far, I would say I'm not really changing anything. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> Well, well you're here, you're on our show, you're talking you about yeah. it, and I think it's very punk rock attitude. Um, we just had Jesse Townley on, who was uh, playing in a bunch of punk rock bands, and then was an elected official later, because he wanted to go do something about something besides be a punk rocker. Yeah. And I think uh, yeah. that, you're, that you're trying to fix something is very punk to me. You know, big problems require action and they require, you know, someone with grit and stick to And, you know, I have a little bit of grit and I'm not easily intimidated, even though I'm kind of petite. So I feel like if I'm not doing this, I, I don't know what else I would be doing, but I'm trying to make amends for some of the things I've had to do in my career, like mass layoffs and, you know, mm. knowing that someone is a pervert, but not being able to fire them straight away. You know, there are, there are things that you see in human resources where you're like, Oh my God, I can't believe I just let that go. Yeah. 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 But when you get a chance to do right, you double down on that opportunity. And so that's what I've been trying to do. I've been given this gift of a second career as a writer, as a speaker, as an entrepreneur, and I'm not going to blow it, or at least I'm going to try to do good with it. And will I make mistakes? Have I made mistakes? Absolutely. But trying to be on the right side of history here. That's amazing. And we're going to put a link up when we post the show, but where can people go to learn more, get your book, all that stuff? Oh, thanks. They can go to um, punkrockhr.com, which is the name of my podcast. I'm trying to give big ideas out about the world of work and to really democratize the world of human resources so that people can, in effect, be their own HR professional. If you can do it yourself, you don't even need to step foot in the HR department. And that's a great way to live. So on there, you'll find a link to my book and my blog and my Instagram account with my foster animals, all the interesting stuff, right? So fun. So, you know, it's interesting as we had um, Christian Picciolini on a few episodes ago, he grew up in Chicago and was in kind of a different part of the punk scene. I mean, he was a racist skinhead at that time and has made a major change in his life um, and now helps people get out of those kinds of groups. Um, you know, and, you know, Chicago just seems to be a breeding ground for change in so many ways. I just watched the the movie about the, the Democratic Convention, you know, and um, what is it, the Chicago, what was it, Chicago 7 or whatever? Chicago 7. Oh, yeah. the new Sorkin movie? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. it's well, just such like a, it? uh, whatever. I'll talk to you later. Yeah, it was good. It was good. <laughs> no, I want to hear. Was it good? It was good. You know, I mean, it, you know, obviously, yeah. you know, they, they kind of make light of things that maybe aren't so, so funny. And, but the, the police brutality and it really like did that thing to my stomach. And I've been on the other side of what you were talking about. You know, I've been incarcerated, so I know how brutal police can really be and how abusive um, they can be. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think, you know, when you talk about changing, fundamentally changing systems as a whole, you know, and you're specifically focused on um, HR, but, you know, quite honestly, if I'm being blunt, having been a production worker for many years um, before I was a manager or owned a business and I worked in you know, I was a baker. I worked in, in service industry, you know, it, it's, it's a, yeah. it's an abusive relationship a lot of times between, you know, managers and owners and the, and the employees. And, you know, I think it's one of the places where still a lot of the issues that have been brought up, like you were talking about me too, and, and the other, you know, the other things that have happened in mm-hmm. terms of social change, black lives matter, 
it's still one of the places where those relationships play out in a really like very like 1950s way. You know what I mean? Like it's still very in the past. And, and so I think when we talk about fundamental change, it, it needs to involve every aspect of our lives, which most of our lives are spent at work. And so as I'm listening to you, it's like, Oh, how am I looking at this totally wrong as a business owner, but also as a human being? Well, I, you know, I think you are not looking at it the wrong way. I think you're doing a lot of things that are absolutely right. And I applaud you for that, for asking these questions, for thinking about the humanness of your workforce, for thinking about where they live and what they are, you know, dealing with on a daily basis. I think work is always going to be difficult. When you create a system of anything, it's always going to be complex. Then you throw in late stage capitalism and greed and racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia and all these things we've been exposed to. And at the end of the day, if you can just treat people with respect and dignity and pay them a living wage, you're probably doing a really great job in this world. So... I think one of the things that really inspires me is that we've got a bunch of, you know, awesome Gen Xers who are now either ascending to power in corporations or opting out and really trying to do things differently. Even, you know, my friend Mike Bravodsky, who is the owner of a cat called Little Bub, Lil Bub, who was mm-hmm. internet famous, he created a micro industry out of this cat while still being very punk rock. And one of the things that was important to him is making sure that Lil Bub's rise benefited the community that he lives in, in Bloomington, Mm. Indiana. So Lil Bub just didn't make him wealthy, which it didn't, but he employed local print print owners to make sweatshirts and t-shirts. And he employed, you know, local individuals to help with marketing and sales. And he really tried to make it a community experience. And I think the more we can kind of get down to the grassroots level in business, the better off we're going to be anyway. You know, Salesforce is a great company, but we got a lot of big behemoth companies out there that are not doing great in this world, you know, that are consuming a lot of energy or leaving a negative carbon footprint are really terrorizing the communities that they live in. And I think moving away from that, disbanding some of that is actually the work that's going to be interesting for me in 2021 and beyond. Like I want to break that shit apart. Yeah. Well, agreed. Um, quick question for you living in Raleigh. Um, one of my good friends and the designer of my wife's engagement ring owns Quirkus Raleigh. Have you ever been to that store? It's a little jewelry no, store downtown. tell me more. Yeah. So I'm just going to recommend it. I'm going to leave it at that and I'll send you a link to her stuff after the show, but yeah. she popped into my mind. So I'm giving Lauren a shout out. <laughs> so, um, That's let's really we're getting to the point of the show where we ask cool what, people. Yeah. What's next? Like what's, what's next for you? What do you, what do you got going on? You got the book out already. You're doing the podcast. You're, you've got people behind you that are getting you on other shows. You know, I see your social media is growing by the yeah. day because you added a bunch of people between when I started following you and now. So what's happening? Like where, where, where's, where's Lori going to so be next year? Insufferable is- Well, I'm working on my next book already. Like I'm thinking about it and have started outlining it. And I want to write about corporate drinking culture. And Mm. I myself am a hardcore punk rock corporate drinker. Mm. Like I had that Amex card and I was like, hell yeah, you know, we're going to be drinking for lunch, drinking for dinner. Mm -hmm. And I've moved away from that lifestyle. Thank goodness. But, you know, it's very difficult to fraternize at work, to socialize with people and to do it alcohol-free. So I want to talk about the history of that, why we do what we do, what alcohol is like in different countries. And if you're going to drink at work, how do you be a healthy corporate drinker? 
That's my quest. You know, I think the answer is quit drinking, everybody. It's time to sober up world. But, you know, I still yeah, have the illusion that I can drink a bottle of champagne on the couch and be healthy. I don't know. But yeah, Corporate Drinker is my next passion project. It just um, it just speaks to me. Oh, then we need another hour because yeah. you have to come back because I want to talk about that because I worked at uh, some dot coms that were just, oh my gosh. <laughs> I consulted there, I know. Oh my God. And I, I quit drinking three years ago. So I have a before and after. Yeah. And I would also recommend maybe not. <laughs> maybe but yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Sobering up. Yeah. I mean, it's the one thing that has really been interesting to me in my evolution. Like the as the older I get, the less I can drink anyway in a healthy way. Right. So I'll be 46 pretty soon. And I I cannot drink anymore. And yet you cannot go out around colleagues in a healthy way without people asking you, why aren't you drinking? What's up? Are you right. sober? What's that? Mm. You're never going to drink again? It's like, mm. oh my God. You know, so I want to I want to talk about this. I want to break it down and offer some healthy solutions. So I can't wait to hear your stories. I You've all got it. them and they're all crazy. The more successful a company is, the more addicts they employ. Yeah. That's true. True story. Oh my gosh, yeah. I've never, I've worked with tech companies since basically the inception of this company that I own now. And I've been sober longer than I've been working with those companies. So I've never been to any of these events, including like South by Southwest drinking. I've been sober 22 years. And I've been running this company for 12. So, you know, it's really interesting as a, I would love to talk to you about this book. I have a ton of stories about yeah. what drunk people do that I see. Cause I'm the sober guy in the room all the time. And it's bananas. Like, I can handle. I can cover the other side of that. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, I mean, you are you are the the target market for this book. So I'm really yeah. fascinated, and I want to invite you onto my podcast so we can talk about these stories and talk about what it's like to be responsible punk rock business owners, entrepreneurs, tech executives, and really um, how to function in this world and to adult well, which is something that you both do. So thanks for <laughs> doing trying. that. Um, we're trying. So, okay, book, you got the podcast. What else? I know you. there's no way that that's it with you. <laughs> well, I, you know, I have to say, um, normally people write goals at the beginning of the year, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, healthy people. I, I know some of those people. I did not purposely write any goals this year because I'm not sure. I had a plan for the book. I thought I was going to sell the book in a certain way, you know, go out mm -hmm. and speak and do all that. And COVID kind of threw that up in the air. Right, yeah. So... You know, I don't know how this book is going to do. I It's getting great reviews, good feedback, like comes out on January 12th. I'm super stoked about it. Mm -hmm. But if it does well, that gives me one path. And if it doesn't do well, then, oh, well, I start the next thing. So I'm trying to be real laid back about it. Um, the nice thing about being <laughs> punk rock is that I'm kind of cheap and I'm kind of frugal. So I don't <laughs> have to like jump into the next thing. And that's sure. something I write about in my book, right? You know, when you're not trying to keep up with the Joneses, you know, I'm driving a 10 year old car. I don't have to drive a 10 year old car. I do it by choice, right? You know? Mm -hmm. So I think when you give yourself a little bit of freedom, you have more choices. So what's next for me? I mean, podcast speaking, writing, expanding my own podcast, but I'm interested in not necessarily having any goals and seeing where that takes me. So sure. wish me luck with that. No, I think that's great. Uh, good luck. Yeah. I think 2020 was a doozy. I could see kicking back a little bit. I, I mean, I as like long I, as I, I cover my basics, right? I mean, that's the lesson of opting out of corporate America. Keep yeah. your footprint small and you don't have to take work that you hate. Right. Mm -hmm. 
I just feel like 2020 was just a kick in the balls all year long. <laughs> you know, I started out the year, I delivered my manuscript in February and my mm-hmm. brother, who's younger than I am, um, also kind of this punk rock kid, but sober, runs marathons, does triathlons, right, to stand straight and narrow. He was diagnosed with colon cancer, like out of the oh. blue. And thankfully, he's in remission, right? But yeah. on top of this, I have not seen my family all year long. Mm-hmm. Oh, so yeah, all yeah. I want to do is stay COVID-free. Like that is my one resolution. I'm going to wash my hands, wear a mask, and not really see anybody unless I have to because I am surviving. I'm going to get that vaccine and I'm going to go see my family. So yeah, yeah, that's my goal. Agreed. 100% agreed. Um, so we heard it, you know, as far as what you have, no other plans in the book, the podcast. Um, but that's great. I love it. Thank and you. Thank you. I'm super I'm, excited about what you're doing. In fact, when we're done, we'll have, we'll, when we close out, we'll have a conversation about what's going on at my company. That's a little more <laughs> private. Cause I don't, you know, I don't want to air anybody's problems on <laughs> On the podcast other than my own. Um, I, I, uh, I just have to say, thank you so much. Like we're coming up on time I'm, now. And I'm I'm so yeah. just grateful. You I'm came so on. grateful to be here. Um, yeah. Thank you both. And I, you know, love talking about music. We didn't even get to talk about all the concerts that I paid for and have not been able to go to in the age of COVID. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, I'm, I'm dying for some live music, right? Uh, bring it back. So yeah. if anything, that's my goal to help facilitate the end of COVID so I can like go out and have a life again. Totally. Yeah. So a um, couple of quick things. We donate our Patreon money to Hospitality House San Francisco, which assists individuals that are struggling with mental health issues and substance abuse. And they do direct peer-to-peer counseling, as well as an art therapy program that is truly remarkable. Been around a long time, and they're a very small nonprofit, so every little bit helps. If you feel like donating to them, please go to their website, hospitalityhousesf.org. We had a guest on a few weeks ago that is a very dear friend, Terry um, Samundra. Um, I just wanted to give her a shout-out. Her father passed away recently. And when we were on the show, she talked about him getting sick and, you know, we just want to send some love to one of our past guests and a close friend to the, of the, of the show. So just a shout out to Terry and, and, and her sister scenery, and we're sending all the love we got to you. So, um, again, it's been a rough, it's been a rough now year and a few, and a few weeks. Right. So, um, but your, your work is inspiring. And I think that you've got, you're onto something. And I'm really glad that your, your, your colleague reached out to us. It's just such, uh, your story is compelling. Your work is compelling. This is how I want to run my company. And so I'm just like, I'm totally honored. Like we didn't know much about you other than the quick research we were able to do the last few days. And just Lori, thank you so much. It's amazing. Like you have a chance to really change how corporate America is doing their, their HR work. And I think the more you talk to business owners like me, the more the word will get out. So um, you know, just thank you. Thank you for, for having a heart for this too, because it takes a big heart to do this stuff. So thanks. Yeah. Thank you both. I really appreciate the opportunity and thanks for taking a chance. You know, you got to ask and all people can do is say yes or no. So I'm glad you said yes. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Me too. Absolutely. We're going to have you back on to talk about that second book eventually. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for listening, everybody. Go out there, uh, listen to our podcast, buy the book on January 12th. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. 